Chapter twenty three of the Lamplighter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Lamplighter by Maria Susanna Cummins. Chapter twenty three. One of that stubborn sort he is, who, if they once grow fond of an opinion, they call it honor, honesty, and faith, and sooner part with life than let it go. Round. Passing over Gertrude's parting with Emily, her cordial reception by Mrs. Sullivan, and her commencement of school duties, we will look in upon her and record the events of a day in November, about two months after she left Mr. Graham's. Rising with the sun, she made her neat toilet in a room so cold that before it was completed her hands were half benumbed. Nor did she, in spite of the chilling atmosphere, omit, ere she commenced the labors of the day, to supplicate heaven's blessing upon them. Then, noiselessly entering the adjoining apartment, where Mrs. Sullivan was still sleeping, she lit a fire, the materials for which had been carefully prepared the night before, in a small grate, and, descending the stairs with the same light footstep, performed a similar service at the cooking-stove, which stood in a comfortable room, where, now that the weather was cold, the family took their meals. The table was set, and the preparations for breakfast nearly completed, when Mrs. Sullivan entered, pale, thin, and feeble in her appearance, and wrapped in a large shawl. "'Gertrude,' said she, "'why will you let me sleep so mornings when you were up and at work? "'I believe it has happened so every day this week.' "'For the very best reason in the world, Auntie, "'because I sleep all the early part of the night, "'and am wide awake at daybreak, "'and with you it is just the reverse. "'Besides, I like to get the breakfast. "'I make such beautiful coffee. "'Look,' said she, pouring some into a cup, "'and then lifting the lid of the coffee-pot "'and pouring it back again.' See how clear it is. Don't you long for some of it this cold morning? Mrs. Sullivan smiled, for Uncle True having always preferred tea, Gertrude did not at first know how to make coffee, and had been obliged to come to her for instructions. Now, said Gertrude, playfully, as she drew a comfortable chair close to the fire, I want you to sit down here and watch the tea-kettle boil, while I run and see if Mr. Cooper is ready to let me tie up his cue. She went, leaving Mrs. Sullivan to think what a good girl she was, and presently returning with the old man, who was dressed with perfect neatness, she placed a chair for him, and having waited, as for a child, while he seated himself, and then pinned a napkin about his throat, she proceeded to place the breakfast on the table. While Mrs. Sullivan poured out the coffee, Gertrude, with a quiet tact, which rendered the action almost unobserved, removed the skin from a baked potato, and the shell from a boiled egg, and placing both on the plate destined for Mr. Cooper, handed him his breakfast in a state of preparation which obviated the difficulty the old man experienced in performing these tasks for himself, and spared Mrs. Sullivan the anxiety she always felt at witnessing his clumsiness and sadly increasing carelessness on those points of neatness so sacred in her eyes. Poor Mrs. Sullivan had no appetite, and it was with difficulty Gertrude persuaded her to eat anything. A few fried oysters, however, unexpectedly placed before her, proved such a temptation that she was induced to taste, and finally to eat several, with a degree of relish she rarely felt lately for any article of food. As Gertrude gazed at her languid face, she realized more than ever before the change which had come over the active, energetic little woman and confident that nothing but positive disease could have effected such a transformation, she resolved that not another day should pass without her seeing a physician. Breakfast over, there were dishes to wash, rooms to be put in order, 
dinner to be decided on and partially prepared. And all this Gertrude exerted herself, and saw accomplished, chiefly through her own labor, before she went to rearrange her dress, previous to her departure for the school, where she had now been some weeks installed as assistant teacher. A quarter before nine she looked in at the kitchen door, and said, in a cheering tone, to the old man, who was cowering gloomily over the fire, "'Come, Mr. Cooper, won't you go over and superintend the new church a little while this morning? Mr. Miller will be expecting you. He said yesterday that he depended on your company when he was at work.' The old man rose, and, taking his greatcoat from Gertrude, put it on with her assistance, and accompanied her in a mechanical sort of way, that seemed to imply a great degree of indifference whether he went or stayed. As they walked in silence down the street, Gertrude could not but revolve in her mind the singular coincidence which had thus made her the almost daily companion of another infirm old man, nor could she fail to draw a comparison between the genial, warm-hearted Uncle True and the gloomy, discontented Paul Cooper, who, never, as we have said, possessing a genial temperament, now retained, in his state of mental imbecility, his old characteristics in an exaggerated form. Unfavorable as the comparison necessarily was to the latter, it did not diminish the kindness and thoughtfulness of Gertrude towards her present charge, who was in her eyes an object of sincere compassion. They soon reached the new church of which Gertrude had spoken, a handsome edifice, built on the site of the old building, in which Mr. Cooper had long officiated as sexton. It was not yet finished, and a number of workmen were at this time engaged in the completion of the interior. A man with a hodful of mortar preceded Gertrude and her companion up the steps, which led to the main entrance, but stopped inside the porch on hearing himself addressed by name, and laying down his burden, turned to respond to the well-known voice. "'Good morning, Miss Flint,' said he. "'I hope you're very well this fine day.' "'Ah, Mr. Cooper, you've come to help me a little, I see. That's right. We can't go on very well without you. You're so used to the place.' "'Here, sir, if you'll come with me, I'll show you what has been done since you were here last. I want to know how you think we get along.' So saying, he was walking away with the old sexton, but Gertrude followed, and detained him a moment, to ask if he would do her the favor to see Mr. Cooper safe home when he passed Mrs. Sullivan's house on his way to dinner. "'Certainly, Miss Flint,' replied the man. "'With all the pleasure in the world. He has usually gone with me pretty readily, when you have left him in my care.' Having obtained this promise, Gertrude hastened towards the school, rejoicing in the certainty that Mr. Cooper would be safe and well amused during the morning, and that Mrs. Sullivan, freed from all responsibility concerning him, would be left to the rest and quiet she so much needed. This cordial coadjutor in Gertrude's plan of diverting and occupying the old man's mind was a respectable mason, who had often been in Mr. Graham's employ and whose good will and gratitude Gertrude had won by the kindness and attention she had shown his family during the previous winter, when they were sick and afflicted. In her daily walk past the church, she had frequently seen Mr. Miller at his work, and it occurred to her that, if she could awaken in Mr. Cooper's mind an interest in the new structure, he might find amusement in coming there and watching the workmen. She had some difficulty in persuading him to visit a building to the erection of which he had been vehemently opposed, not only because it was inimical to his interests, but on account of the strong attachment he had for the old place of worship. Once there, however, he became interested in the work, and, as Mr. Miller took pains to make him comfortable, and even awakened in him the belief that he was useful, 
he gradually acquired a habit of passing the greater part of every morning and watching the men engaged in their various branches of industry. Sometimes Gertrude called for him on her return from school, and sometimes, as on the present occasion, Mr. Miller undertook to accompany him home. Since Gertrude had been at Mrs. Sullivan's house, there was a very perceptible alteration in Mr. Cooper. He was much more manageable, looked better contented, and manifested far less irritability than he had previously done. And this favorable change, together with the cheering influence of Gertrude's society, he had for a time produced a proportionately beneficial effect upon Mrs. Sullivan. But within the last few days, her increased debility, and one or two sudden attacks of faintness, had awakened all, and more than all, of Gertrude's former fears. She had left home with a determination, as soon as she should be released from her school duties, to seek Dr. Jeremy and request his attendance. And it was in order to secure leisure for that purpose that she had solicited Mr. Miller's superintending care for Mr. Cooper. Of Gertrude's school duties we shall say nothing, save that she was found by Mr. W. fully competent to the performance of them, and that she met with those trials and discouragements only to which all teachers are more or less subjected from the idleness, obstinacy, or stupidity of their pupils. On this day, however, she was, from various causes, detained to a later hour than usual, and the clock struck two at the very moment that she was ringing Dr. Jeremy's doorbell. The girl who opened the door knew Gertrude by sight, having often seen her at her master's house, and telling her that, though the doctor was just going into dinner, she thought he would see her, asked her into the office, where he stood, with his back to the fire, eating an apple, as it was his invariable custom to do before dinner. He laid it down, however, and advanced to meet Gertrude, holding out both his hands. "'Gertrude Flint, I declare,' exclaimed he, "'why, I'm glad to see you, my girl. Why haven't you been here before, I should like to know?' Gertrude explained that she was living with friends, one of whom was very old, the other an invalid, and that so much of her time was occupied in school that she had no opportunity for visiting.' "'Poor excuse,' said the doctor. "'Poor excuse. "'But now we've got you here, we shan't let you go very soon.' "'And going to the foot of the staircase, "'he called, in the loudest possible tone of voice, "'Mrs. Jerry, Mrs. Jerry, come, "'come down to dinner as quick as you can, "'and put on your best cap. "'We've got company.' "'Poor soul,' added he, in a lower tone, "'addressing himself to Gertrude, "'and smiling good-naturedly. "'She can't hurry, can she, Gertie? "'She's fat.' Gertrude now protested against staying to dinner, declaring she must hasten home, and announcing Mrs. Sullivan's illness and the object of her visit. "'An hour can't make much difference in such a case,' insisted the doctor. "'You must stay and dine with me, and then I'll go wherever you wish, and take you with me in the buggy.' Gertrude hesitated. The sky had clouded over, and a few flakes of snow were falling. She should have an uncomfortable walk, and, moreover, it would be better for her to accompany the doctor.' as the street in which she lived was principally composed of new houses, not yet numbered, and he might, if he were alone, have some difficulty in finding the right tenement. At this stage of her reflections, Mrs. Jeremy entered. Fat she certainly was, very uncommonly fat, and flushed, too, with her unwanted haste, and the excitement of anticipating the company of a stranger. She kissed Gertrude in the kindest manner, and then, looking round, and seeing that there was no one else present, exclaimed, glancing reproachfully at the doctor. "'Why, Dr. Jerry, ain't you ashamed of yourself? I never will believe you again. You made me think there was some great stranger here. 
"'And pray, Mrs. Jerry, who's a greater stranger in this house than Gertie Flint?' "'Sure enough,' said Mrs. Jeremy. "'Gertrude is a stranger, and I've got a scolding in store for her on that very account. "'But you know, Dr. Jerry, I shouldn't have put on my lilac and pink for Gertrude to see. "'She likes me just as well in my old yellow, if she did tell me when I bought it, the saucy girl, "'that I'd selected the ugliest cap in Boston. "'Do you remember that, Gertie?' Gertie laughed heartily at the recollection of a very amusing scene that took place at the milliner's when she went shopping with Mrs. Jeremy. "'But come, Gertie,' continued that lady, "'dinner's ready. Take off your cloak and bonnet, and come into the dining-room. The doctor has got a great deal to say, and has been wanting dreadfully to see you.' They had been sitting some minutes without a word's having been spoken, beyond the usual civilities of the table, when the doctor, suddenly laying down his knife and fork, commenced laughing— and laughed till the tears came into his eyes. Gertrude looked at him inquiringly, and Mrs. Jeremy said, "'There, Gertrude, for one whole week he has just such a laughing fit, two or three times a day. I was as much astonished at first as you are, and I confess I don't quite understand now what could have happened between him and Mr. Graham that was so very funny.' "'Come, wife,' said the doctor, checking himself in his merriment, "'don't you forestall my communication.' I want to tell the story myself. I don't suppose, continued he, turning towards Gertrude, you've lived five years at Mr. Graham's, without finding out what a cantankerous, opinionative, obstinate old hulk he is. Doctor, said Mrs. Jeremy, reprovingly, and shaking her head at him. I don't care for winking or head-shaking, wife. I speak my mind. And that's the conclusion I've come to with regard to Mr. Graham. And Gertrude here has done the same. I haven't a particle of doubt. "'Only she's a good girl, and won't say so.' "'I never saw anything that looked like it,' said Mrs. Jeremy, "'and I've seen as much of him as most folks. "'I meet him in the street almost every day, "'and he looks as smiling as a basket of chips, "'and makes a beautiful bow.' "'I dare say,' said the doctor, "'Gertrude and I know what gentlemanly manners he has "'when one does not walk in the very teeth of his opinions. "'Eh, Gertrude? "'But when one does. "'In talking politics, for instance,' suggested Mrs. Jeremy, "'It's your differences with him on politics that have set you against him so.' "'No, it isn't,' replied the doctor. "'A man may get angry talking politics, and be a pretty good-natured man, too, in the main. "'I get angry myself on politics. "'But that isn't the sort of thing I have reference to at all. "'It's Graham's wanting to lay down the law to everybody that comes within ten miles of him that I can't endure. "'His dictatorial way of acting, as if he were the grand mogul of Cochin China.' I thought he'd improved of late years. He had a serious lesson enough in that sad affair of poor Philip Amory's. But fact, I believe he's been trying the old game again. Ha, 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 shouted the good doctor, leaning forward and giving Gertrude a light tap on the shoulder. Wasn't I glad when I found he'd met at last with a reasonable opposition? And that, too, where he least expected it. Gertrude looked her astonishment at his evident knowledge of the misunderstanding between herself and Mr. Graham and in answer to that look, he continued, "'You wonder where I picked up my information, and I'll tell you. It was partly from Graham himself. And what diverts me is to think how hard the old chap tried to hide his defeat, and persuade me that he'd had his own way after all, when I saw through him, and knew as well as he did, that he'd found his match in you.' "'Dr. Jeremy,' interposed Gertrude, "'I hope you don't think—' "'No, my dear, I don't think you a professed pugilist, "'but I consider you a girl of sense, "'one who knows what's right, and will do what's right, "'in spite of Mr. Graham, or anybody else. 
and when you hear my story, you will know the grounds on which I formed my opinion with regard to the course things had taken, and the reasons I have for understanding the state of the case rather better than Graham meant I should. One day, perhaps it was about two months ago, you may remember the exact time better than I do, I was summoned to go and see one of Mr. W.'s children, who had an attack of croup. Mr. W. was talking with me, when he was called away to see a visitor, and on his return he mentioned that he had just secured your services in his school. I was not surprised, for I knew Emily intended you for a teacher, and I was thankful you had got so good a situation. I had hardly left Mr. W.'s door, however, before I encountered Mr. Graham, and he entertained me, as we went down the street, with an account of his plans for the winter. "'But Gertrude Flint is not going with you,' said I. "'Gertrude,' said he, "'certainly she is. "'Are you sure of that?' I asked. "'Have you invited her?' "'Invited her? No,' was his answer. "'But, of course, I know she will go, and be glad enough of the opportunity. "'It isn't every girl in her situation that is so fortunate.' "'Now, Gertie, I felt a little provoked at his way of speaking.' and I answered, in nearly as confident a tone as his own. I doubt myself whether she will accept the invitation. Upon that, Mr. Dignity straightened up, and such a speech as he made. I never can recall it without being amused, especially when I think of the come-down that followed so soon after. I can't repeat it, but goodness, Gertrude, one would have thought to hear him, that it was not only impossible you should oppose his wishes, but actual treason in me to suggest such a thing." Of course, I knew better than to tell what I had just heard from Mr. W., but I never felt a greater curiosity about anything than I did to know how the matter would end. Two or three times I planned to drive out with my wife, to see Emily, and hear the result. But a doctor never can call a day his own, and I got prevented. At last, one Sunday, I heard Mrs. Prime's voice in the kitchen. Her niece lives here, and down I went to make my inquiries. That woman is a friend of yours, Gertrude, and pretty sharp where you are concerned. She told me the truth, I rather think, though not perhaps all the particulars. It was not more than a day or two after that before I saw Graham. Ah, said I, when do you start? Tomorrow, replied he. Really, I exclaimed, then I shan't see your ladies again. Will you take a little package from me to Gertrude? I know nothing about Gertrude, said he stiffly. What? rejoined I, affecting the greatest surprise. Has Gertrude left you? She has, answered he and dared, continued I, quoting his own words, to treat you with such disrespect, to trifle so with your dignity. Dr. Jeremy, exclaimed he, I don't wish to hear that young person mentioned. She has behaved as ungratefully as she has unwisely. Why, about the gratitude, Graham, said I, I believe you said it would only be an additional favor on your part if you took her with you. And I can't say but what I think it is wisdom in her to make herself independent at home." "'But I really am sorry for you and Emily. "'You will miss her so much.' "'We can dispense with your sympathy, sir,' answered he, "'for that which is no loss.' "'Ah, really,' I replied. "'Now, I was thinking Gertrude's society would be quite a loss.' "'Mrs. Ellis goes with us,' said he, "'with a marked emphasis, "'that seemed to say she was a person "'whose company compensated for all deficiency.' "'Ah,' said I, "'charming woman, Mrs. Ellis.' "'Graham looked annoyed.' for he is aware that Mrs. Ellis is my antipathy. "'Well, you ought to have known better, Dr. Jerry,' said his kind-hearted wife, "'than to have attacked a man so on his weak point. It was only exciting his temper for nothing. I was taking up the cudgels for Gertrude, wife. 
and I don't believe Gertrude wants you to take up the cudgels for her. I have no manner of doubt that she has the kindest of feelings toward Mr. Graham, this blessed minute. I have indeed, Mrs. Jeremy, said Gertrude. He has been a most generous and indulgent friend to me. Except when you wanted to have your own way, suggested the doctor, which I seldom did, when it was in opposition to his wishes. And what if it were? I always considered it my duty to submit to him, until at last a higher duty compelled me to do otherwise. And then, my dear, said Mrs. Jeremy, I dare say it pained you to displease him, and that is a right woman's feeling, and one that Dr. Jerry, in his own heart, can't but approve of, though one would think to hear him talk that he considered it pretty in a young girl to take satisfaction in browbeating an old gentleman. But don't let us talk any more about it. He has had his say, and now it's my turn. I want to hear how you are situated, Gertie, where you live, and how you like teaching. Gertrude answered all these questions, and the doctor, who had heard Mrs. Sullivan spoken of as a friend of True's and Gertie's, at the time when he attended the former, made inquiries concerning the state of her health. It was by this time beginning to snow fast, and Gertrude's anxiety to return home in good season being very manifest to her kind host and hostess, they urged no further delay and after she had given many a promise to repeat her visit on the earliest opportunity, she drove away with the doctor. End of chapter 23